0: Hello everyone and welcome to Everyday Sublime, the podcast that explores a full-spectrum spirituality, looking at ways to integrate the shadow elements of being, our light, and how to promote a harmonized experience of unity. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm delighted that you're here. Okay, so today, for a little bit of housekeeping before this Dharma Talk, um, I want to give you an update about the podcast format, or the podcast structure. For the very near future, and probably longer, I'll be releasing roughly five episodes a month. Four of those episodes will be kind of a solo cast Dharma Talk, and those Dharma Talks are coming out of the evening Dharma Talks on Monday nights that I offer as part of the Sangha or the virtual sangha that Terry and I are teaching now. Um, so those episodes will will appear a week after they've been recorded on the following Monday. And then on the second, or possibly the first Thursday of most months, I will be releasing a longer-form interview with a guest. And as I synchronize these two offerings, the Dharma Talks and the, and the long-form interviews, I'm hoping to actually... Um, kind of continue on with what I was starting to do with the solo cast before in the last few months of the summer. I hope to draw from the interviews I have with my guests and, and tease out themes that become the, the subjects of the Dahmer, Dahmer talks themselves. So there's quite a bit of content here and it just occurred to me that if, it, if you haven't tried this yet, I want to recommend this as a way for how you might listen to and metabolize the material of these episodes. Um, Something that I have done for years in my own yoga practice, specifically my yin yoga practice, is to often play a dharma talk or a podcast in the background while I'm engaged in my yoga practice. Um, This really works nicely for the contemplative style of yin yoga, but um, you don't have to listen to the entire talk while you're practicing, but for maybe a half hour or 45 minutes of a session, It can be really nice to have some input to inform and guide how you orient and work with your experience while you're practicing. This is just something I found enormously helpful over the years, and I just want to pass that tip along to you. Now, a few days after the release of this episode, I'll be releasing my conversation with philosophy professor Robin Wong. Robin teaches philosophy at Loyola University in Los Angeles. She's written a wonderful book called Yin Yang, The Way of Heaven and Earth in Chinese Thought. And we had a great chat of all things Yin Yang and how Yin Yang fits in with sort of the overview or the, the, the philosophy of Taoism. So that's, that's a really meaty episode. And one of the things I wanted to mention here was that in, in preparation for that conversation, i really recommend checking out my conversation with bernie clark from last month called beyond the binary bernie and i look at binary thinking and how it shows up in mostly in yoga practice specifically yin yoga practice um there's a lot of of great information in that episode and i think the binary thinking discussion really sets up nicely my conversation with with robin So do check out those episodes and uh, let me know what you think of them. And lastly, before today's talk, just to to mention that if you would like to join our sangha and have access to live and recorded classes that go along with the themes that are presented in these kinds of talks, um, we encourage you to do so. We're, We're very open and welcoming to all new members. And we have a very flexible membership model where essentially it's a sliding fee model and that means that if you can support us with some modest financial contribution, uh, we offer memberships that start at $25 a month. So that would be $25 a month for roughly 16 classes a month, plus access to the library of archived recordings. And if you're not able to chip in, we realize many people are struggling financially, uh, we offer a beneficiary membership model where you can Uh, have access and join our community for free. So either way, whether you're a sustaining or a beneficiary member, we welcome you. And if you'd like more information on that, that can be found at our site, www.joshsummers.net forward slash sangha. That's S-A-N-G-H-A. Okay, now for today's talk, the anti-fragile heart. (laughs) to start tonight's talk with a quick review of a concept of or a concept called anti-fragility. And if you're in the Yin Yoga world, you you're, you've undoubtedly heard of this concept. Um, the concept comes from a, a philosopher named Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He's Lebanese, and he wrote a book by this title, Anti-Fragile. And essentially, he He's using this term "antifragile" to describe certain systems and in contrast against other systems. And I say systems, the system could be biological, the system could be economic, the system could be political. Um, but in terms of biology, the basic idea of anti-fragility is that when anti-fragile systems get stressed, they respond by becoming stronger, they become stronger, more capable. And that's in contrast to systems that are either fragile, and a fragile system is like, like this glass here. Uh, if I were to elevate uh, this glass to high enough height and drop it, uh, it would shatter against the floor if it hit with enough force. Um, so a fragile system, when it's stressed enough, will break down, and then it, you know, it would be very difficult, if impossible, to put it back together again in a functional way. So basically, fragile systems break down. Um, and then other systems can be described as robust systems, like this cork block, this cork yoga block. I can stress it all sorts of ways. I can throw it against my wall. I can throw it against the floor, throw it against the ceiling. doesn't matter how I throw it. It will remain, by and large, unchanged. So any system that uh, can experience stress and not really change very much, more or less be be, be as it was before the stress, That's what Talib refers to as a robust system. But many systems in the world are anti-fragile. And uh, the key there is that when they are appropriately stressed, those systems respond by becoming stronger than they were prior to the stress. And this is the basic principle of exercise. So we think of physically training the body, whether it's in yoga or with weights, or uh, cardiovascular training, running and jogging and and, uh, walking assuming we've stressed the body appropriately and give it enough adequate chance to rest the body increases its capacity increases its strength and uh, just a good little quote here from uh, talib about anti-fragility is this he says anti-fragility is a property of systems that increase in capability to thrive as a result of stressors shocks volatility noise mistakes, faults, attacks, and failures. Anti-fragile systems are, will actually uh, increase their capability to thrive when they encounter shocks, volatility, attacks, and failures, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> now, the reason I'm teeing up this talk with this concept, a review of this concept, is because I think of, one way I'd like to think of meditation is meditation is a kind of uh, training in anti-fragility for the heart, for our heart. that Our heart can be trained initially to be anti-fragile in that when it gets stressed, we learn how to work with the material that's stressing it. We learn to see it clearly and relate to it well. We can actually develop, and it will feel like we're developing it at a certain point, we're developing a more anti-fragile heart. And and that's sort of in spiritual terms, that's a developmental path of spirituality where you're slowly strengthening your skills uh, day by day, week by week, etc. Um, and then there are many traditions, and I and I and I, I think they have a lot to say here, but there are many traditions that will assert that the, the the nature of the heart itself, the nature of the bodhicitta, the awakened heart-mind, the nature of the heart is already anti-fragile, if you will. It's already capable of thriving in the middle of whatever's going on. So on one level, there's a way that we're gradually, in a sense, nudging ourselves to cultivate anti-fragility in practice. And that's what I'm going to be talking about tonight. And then uh, with certain stages of realization, you may might actually confirm these other traditions that say the heart itself is always already free. We just didn't see it or understand it or perceive it That way, and that's what created all this searching and striving and 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 and, uh, spiritual work that we had to go through to realize something that was already one hundred percent with us already. So, this this talk is loosely called the anti-fragile heart. The anti-fragile heart. Now, meditation another thing one thing we could say about meditation is that the basic hypothesis of meditation at least in this particular tradition which again i'm putting in the tradition of early buddhist practice um, probably later buddhist practice too and in many ways similar to uh, elements of advaita vedanta teaching um, but these traditions more or less assert something similar which is that there is a peace and happiness available to us that is independent of conditions so independent of the weather independent of political stuff independent of health issues independent of interpersonal relationship independent of intrapersonal stuff like stuff going on within your thoughts about yourself independent all of of all that they they assert this hypothesis that there is a peace, there is a happiness that's that's already here, that's independent of conditions. So one way of looking at the meditation is that meditation practice is a way to test that hypothesis. We're, we're, we're first looking into what's going on, but then we start to test, is it true? Is there something here right now that's at peace independent of whatever else might be going on externally or internally and i would say uh, you know, my 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 sense of things is that most of you if not all of you have already had many tastes of that peace and happiness independent of conditions and uh, my, my confidence in making that statement comes from just listening to people talk about their experience after a yoga class in Shavasana. Like, not, obviously, they're not talking during Shavasana, but when they get up and they talk about what the Shavasana was like, they'll say, wow, you know, it's crazy. I, I came in here and I had like all the schoolwork or my boss is piling all the stuff on me or this, this drama at work that I'm dealing with or I'm going through a divorce or just all the stuff going on in the person's life. And they go through their yoga practice, and then they lie in shavasana, and they'll they'll report and say, "But when I was in shavasana, it was like I was totally at peace with things. There was a, there was a, a, a clear sense of contentment and ease in the middle of the the chaos out there." And and then most people sort of ass, uh, make the kind of the the spiritual mistake of associating the condition of Shavasana with that experience, meaning they think that experiencing that contentment or experiencing that peace is somehow dependent on having gone through a particular class and not even just a particular class, but particular class of a particular teacher or a particular class, of a particular teacher at a particular studio or a particular class of a particular teacher at a particular studio at a particular time of day particular class with a particular teacher with a particular studio at a particular time of day with a particular incense burning. <laughs> just, I'm actually just seeing how fast, how, how far I can take this. But, you know, they, people can get really um, attached to uh, specific conditions promoting that experience of peace and ease. And then, they, and then they spend a lot of their spiritual energy just trying to recreate those conditions so they can get back to something not realizing that what they uncovered in that Shavasana was, is actually ever-present and available if we know how to look and recognize it, look for it and recognize it. And so while you might taste that piece in Shavasana, I would say meditation training is, one way of looking at it is meditation is a way of training and kind of baking that piece into us. The meditation practice is a way to test that piece again and again and again until it isn't just a passing fleeting state of experience, but it actually becomes more and more of an abiding trait of our being. And that, that phrase that moving from states to traits, um, I um, share in deference to the guy I learned from Ken Wilber, who's an American philosopher and, and uh, spiritual uh, practitioner. So, this basic hypothesis is really, really important to understand because if uh, if it's not fully internalized, it can easily uh, start a form of practice or it can, it can engender a, an approach to your meditation practice whereby the meditator, you guys, me, when we're meditating, we're trying to Sort of play with the dials of our experience, or move, I sometimes say we move, try to move the furniture around in our experience so things are peaceful. So we might sit and then try to breathe with our sensations so that the aches and pains or the itches and the the, the tingling that makes us crawl under our skin, all of that can go away. You can try to rearrange this, the 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 furniture of physical sensation, and then the other big one is what is your mind? What's your mind producing? The kinds of thoughts and feelings and and uh, fears and anxieties that come up and a lot of people come with the kind of the simplistic idea that in meditation you're going to do some magic formula so that all that stuff just gets conveniently swept to the side but all of that those approaches whether you're trying to make the body feel better you're trying to get the mind not to have some things in it cultivate other things all of those things are in a sense predicated on peace being Connected to particular states or getting conditions to be one way or another, and that's not in alignment with this basic hypothesis that these other wisdom traditions are asserting that there is a piece independent of conditions. So it's important to understand that because then, from there, when we move into a practice and we start applying ourselves to a meditation, we practice in a way where we're not trying to change conditions. We're sitting down with a gentle, sober intention to be simply open and receptive to things as they are, conditions as they are. And if we engage with meditation this way, one of the things I I try to um, suggest is that the meditation then, when we're just letting the world be, we're letting our inner world be, letting our outer world be, we just let the world be as it is one of the things that the meditation will do is it will function the, the form of sitting will function as a psychic mirror so we're all familiar with the physical mirror the physical mirror we look at in the in the bathroom or in our in our bedroom or wherever we have a mirror in our life and we sort of look at it before we go out into the world. We when we put ourselves together we see like you know what do I need to trim my beard or do I need to brush and floss my teeth or do I need to shave my head? Whatever you need to do to make yourself presentable or what you feel is presentable. So there's, we're familiar with using a physical mirror, but when I refer to a psychic mirror, um, it's, it's the sense that the stillness of sitting, the form of sitting is, is, is set up so that that structure of sitting reveals conditioned patterns of reaction to things so we're not sitting to become like a statue in the sense that there's no virtue in becoming statue like you know if that were the case we could maybe just get ourselves dipped in some sort of hard molding plastic (laughs) get get, like remember those those ice cream cones you could dip into the, the hot fudge and then you'd take it out and it would harden like a shell around the ice cream well, we can dip ourselves into some plastic version of that, and suddenly we're still and immobile. That is not going to confer spiritual virtue. And, and you know, Ajahn Chah said also, he said, you know, a, um, a hen can sit on her nest of eggs for several hours in stillness. That doesn't make that hen wise. So the, the virtue of sitting in stillness isn't to become like a statue. The virtue is that when we don't act out on mental desires, when we don't act out on um, impulses and obsessional things that we tend to do, like check your phone, reach for the, 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 the refrigerator or the remote control or whatever your, your jam is, when we don't act out on things, we become much more sensitive to the, internal impulses that are arising in reaction to various conditions so when the body is not comfortable when we're not moving we will see with greater fer- you know, ferocity the mind's desire to move away from something that's unpleasant that reveals the unconditioned or sorry that reveals the very conditioned response to unpleasant stimuli and when something pleasant does arise say like you do sit and and you just relax for a little while and suddenly like this clear open space in your mind opens up. There might be this this like north star appearing in your third eye and your body seems like it's sort of swept up in a wave of, of like of bliss bubbles or whatever it might be. You know, when some very pleasant stuff comes in, then the, you, you will see your mind's conditioned reaction to say, yes, please, please don't go away. I'd like you to keep to keep stay with me for at least the next 30 minutes i won't do anything just please stay for the next 30 minutes and then of course it does it degrades <laughs> it might disappear and then you're hankering to get back to it so those are just two simple examples but we see this in in a, in a whole myriad way myriad ways how the mind in the stillness of the city and how the mind responds to very ordinary experiences with a conditioned reaction i'll give one more example because the people tend to uh not see the spiritual significance of this, but um, I remember listening to one 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 person share their part of their meditation, and they said, "You know," and then I just had this really persistent, annoying itch in the back of my neck, and it drove me crazy; it wouldn't go away, and I felt like my my meditation was a waste.
1: And I, you know, I, I understand what they were saying and why
0: it felt that way, but when I got into a dialogue with them, I said, "Look." That itch is actually a microcosm of the whole path. That's not, among, that's not like a, 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 a condition that's not spiritually relevant. When you see the sensation of an itch, you see your conditioned response to lunge at it, <laughs> scratch it, bargain with it, hack at it, whatever you need to do. When you see that conditioned response and you don't act upon it. Immediately, you're starting to transcend your conditioning. You're you're starting to wake up into a dimension of your being that can both see the stimulus, the conditioned response, and you don't have to feed it. That's a moment of awakening. So, in a way, uh, seeing our conditioned attempts to find happiness in things, like to, see, to find happiness in sensations, happiness in pleasant sounds, pleasant smells, pleasant tastes, pleasant sights, pleasant meditative experience. When we see our conditioned response to that, to those things, and wanting those things, this is revealing our conditioned reactions. And and that's a d- very 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 important function of meditation. And one way you could put it, and, and I've heard some folks talk about it like this: you could say we are making conscious, we're allowing into our consciousness that which is normally relegated to our unconscious. I mean, when we experience these sort of compulsive impulses, we may not be fully conscious of what we're doing. And um, if you if you need evidence of that, uh, you can try the, 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 the often on again botched experiments I've tried with going off social media or taking email off your phone you know just try this like just for a day if you're interested take take all of that off your phone just for a day and notice how many times you impulsively pick it up and and press the phone trying to mash at it to open up your email open up the social media page that you you know are habitually maybe potentially not i'm not saying you're as much of an addict as i am but You know, you might see that you you get into those things and you're not even fully aware of it. It's humbling. (laughs) It can be very humbling to see that. But meditation, the beauty of it, is that it starts to reveal those impulses, all of those impulses. So that which is unconscious starts to be admitted into consciousness. Um, And last week, I tried to speak about a part of us that is likely to announce itself. Within our meditation journey, and that part of us is the inner critic. It's the the the, the, the part that's sort of um, tireless, tirelessly judgmental, critical, uh, opinionated, um, sarcastic, sniping—just uh, not very pleasant part of our being. And in last week's talk, I tried to suggest that. In, in terms of skill development, whether we're developing a skill in meditation, developing skill in painting, skill in writing, skill in anything, um, at the beginning, to borrow that quote from Ira Glass, in the beginning of any kind of artistic endeavor, there's going to be this gap between our taste that got us in the game, the taste we have for what we want to produce or what we, what we find aesthetically and uh, enlivening and, and enriching. There's this gap between our taste, and our skill level. And, that, and that's, that gap can be quite demoralizing at times because we produce something and we don't feel very uh, proud or um, en- enlivened, I guess. You don't feel very enlivened by the thing you produce. Um, and I, I proved this to myself recently where I took my notebook. I thought, you know, I have this friend and every day he seems to produce three to five beautiful paintings. He's just this, and he's he's also a per, like a tenured professor of philosophy and a great blues guitarist, and he also happens to be a fantastic painter. He's also the guy that painted my my the the, the podcast logo, if you see that. Named Stephen Asma. So I was sort of inspired by Stephen. And I thought I'll go out back in my in my little yard out back behind the apartment, and I'll I'll take my notebook and I'll just sketch bits of nature. You know, and it and I live under uh, a three year old and a one and a half year old, and I and I. I would probably put money on it that either of the girls upstairs would be able to produce a more uh, aesthetically pleasing bird image or a tree or a shrub or whatever than I could. It was like, it was hopelessly embarrassing. But it reminded me of this gap, this gap between our taste and our skill. And so I was trying to say when you hear the inner critic's voice, be friendly to it because it may be reminding you of your good taste in, your, in terms of your spiritual aspirations, good taste in terms of what it means to be kind, good taste in terms of what it means to be wise, good taste in terms of what it means to be compassionate. But as I was giving the talk, it did occur to me that uh, there, there may be a time when that inner critic's voice is just gratuitously and unnecessarily harsh. And one of you actually wrote to me about this thing. Well, you know, what, what do you do if the voice is just saying, you suck. You know, it's not really saying much in terms of like, you know, it might have been better if you, when you, when you, when you woke up, did you notice when you woke up from the drifting meditation, did you notice how there was a little bit of a Homer Simpson voice of, don't, like try to catch that and just try to be a little gentler. Now, that's, that's skillful use of the inner critic's energy. But if the inner critic is just giving these, you know, gratuitous ad hominems about what a, what a worthless POS you are, then it's, you can you can make the case it's not really worth listening to. So um, I want to speak about that in the sense that even though its message may not be useful, it's still a part of us. And I'll probably at some point get into working with how to, how to dialogue with these parts. I, I kind of want to hold off on going into that, that kind of work tonight. But I want to just start with the basic premise that it is still part of us, And we can still open to it, and not let it not let it completely define who and what we are. And it's worth mentioning uh, along that theme that that when we when I when I encourage people in meditation to be receptive to your experience as it is, to be to cultivate to try to cultivate a kind, gentle. spacious tolerance to what your experience is, I want to be clear that I'm not saying you, if you're doing this correctly, that you will always like or love that which you're experiencing, okay? So there's a difference between feeling like, oh, I re- I'm cultivating kindness and I really feel the kindness towards that inner critic or that really uncharitable part of me. I'm not suggesting that you'll necessarily feel that today or tomorrow or the next week or whenever i'm suggesting more that by practicing with it and practicing being kinder to it we can start to tolerate a little bit more we can start to actually have cultivate a little bit more inner space in, within ourselves for that for that part to be present in our life for that part to be part of us and not to be exiled or cut out or pushed away and this is uh another sense of the path that i i really come to appreciate which is that one way of describing a spiritual journey is that a you could say we're, we're uncovering a peace and happiness and and well-being that's independent of conditions that's one kind of characteristic way of describing it you could also describe the path the spiritual journey as a path of movement from an experience of fragmentation where we're like a fragmented being. We, you, at first you might feel like your head is just fragmented from your body. And that's what yoga does a lot of good to, to correct is that we, we climb back into our body and start to re-inhabit our um, embodied sense, which allows us to then start to integrate more aspects of our, our psychological or psycho emotional being. But on, the, on, on that level, the psycho-emotional side, we tend to have this, this side of us that we present to the world. And that could be called. That's, it does get called the persona, sort of the projected, the way we see ourselves that we project out. Like I'm such a wonderful person because I have a meditation practice. I actually, in fact, I'm so good. I have a whole spiritual resume I could show you if you ever have the time. I could I could email it to any of you. I could give you all my retreats that I've done and all the teachers I've worked. I'm really a great person. So you get you get. There's that persona side. And then behind that is, the, is what Carl Jung referred to as the shadow, the parts of ourselves that are either you know, repressed or just or, or held within our unconscious that we're not privy to. And there can be a lot of uh, shameful aspects of ourselves or forbidden aspects of ourselves or taboo aspects of ourselves that we are not able to tolerate at the level of our persona, the, our, our, our socialized self. And it gets all shoved underground. And this movement from fragmented a fragmented being to an experience of a unified wholeness inevitably involves integrating uh, these shadow aspects of our being. So I kind of want to, I want to plant a flag on this. I'm, and I'm doing this intentionally from the very beginning so that uh, when this material comes up, and it doesn't mean that it will come up tonight, it doesn't mean it's going to come up tomorrow, but I want you to have heard it from me a few times so that you know that when challenging energies do arise, it's not a mistake it's not a sign that you're backsliding it's not a sign that your your practice has gone to hell it's actually a sign that this unconscious material that has been sort of disconnected from your being is is coming back for unification it's coming back to be integrated um, and this is really uh, you know a, a kind of a Taoist view of things in a certain sense we're harmonizing yin and yang you know in yin yoga we tend to give the, the term yin, these these beautiful attributes, but in a pure Taoist sense, you know yin and yang, yin is chaos. Yang is order. And they're not separate. High and low are not separate. Hot and cold are never separate. They're always relative to each other. So one way of thinking about it is we when we are only identified with the positive, and we're we're shunning and, and exiling and repressing the negative, we have this divided sense of being whereby yin and yang in our, in our experience are dissociated from each other. And to come to wholeness, we have to realize that the good and the evil within us can, can be one. And they actually are one when we can start to perceive it that way. And this brings me to the quotation that I shared in the newsletter, um, the, the email that I sent out last night or yesterday afternoon um, from the third Zen patriarch, Seng San, who is one of the first Chan masters in China, Zen masters in China. Now, I'll just read this again. He says, The great way isn't difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences. Let go of longing and aversion, and everything will be perfectly clear. When you cling to a hairbreadth of of distinction, heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. The struggle between good and evil is the primal disease of the mind. It does go on, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but that that first, but even the first line, the great way isn't difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences now this is, this is a, a uh, an important passage, and the, the key word there is unattached Key word is unattached and I kind of want to talk a little bit about what might that word signify what is un, what is unattached mean in a spiritual context um, What it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean without preferences. So being unattached to preferences doesn't mean you won't have preferences. So let's get that clear from the beginning. When you're meditating and your foot goes to sleep and you notice the preference to move, that doesn't mean you're necessarily attached to the preference. It just means you're having the preference. You're experiencing a preference. Or if, um, you know, let's say your mind is just chattering incessantly, and you're kind of circling around five things in a, in, a, in a overly caffeinated way, and you're just whipping around these topics again and again, like a, in, a, in a whirlpool, uh, there might be a preference that, that those experiences weren't going on. Now, when you're attached to it, this is the key thing, when you're attached to it, your happiness is dependent on achieving or attaining the thing you want vis-a-vis the experience so if you're attached to your if your happiness is attached to the thoughts going away that's that's a form of attachment you could still have those thoughts without that conditional expectation that your happiness is predicated on the thoughts going away so another way of putting it is you know this pen is hopefully you can see this red pen when I'm attached my fist of my hand or my mind, if you will, the, the, my, my hand signifies my, my mind here, when my hand grabs on the pen and holds on tightly, I'm attached to it. If I just open my palm, open my mind, the condition of the pen is still there. It hasn't disappeared. It hasn't been annihilated. It hasn't gone up in smoke. The pen is still there, and I can use that pen if I need to. And it's the same thing with a, a, a preference. You might have a preference for a light roast of coffee versus a dark roast. You might have a preference for milk chocolate over dark chocolate. You might have a preference for two Zafus versus one Zafu. You might have these preferences. That's fine. But if you're attached to them, that's like your happiness is dependent on you getting them. So getting away, like being unattached to preference does not mean being free of preferences. And I think this is really important to understand that that as long as we're alive, these preferences are going to arise. It's just that we can start to see them more clearly and not be um, conditioned to seek our happiness in fulfilling those preferences. This is where I always think to quote the old John Prime song. John Prime or John Prime? I think it's John Prime. Um, I'm looking for one of my props here. His song, uh, That's the Way the World Goes Round. And I I heard this first in Ireland many, many years ago. But the line is something like, you're up one minute and the next you're down. You're in a half an inch of water and you think you're going to drown. That's the way the world goes round. You're up one minute the next you're down. So when we're attached to things being one way or another, we're constantly up and down because the world we're in is incessantly changing. So the reason things are up and down is because we're attached to preferences vis-a-vis the changing world. And so this is where I try to bring up my final um, bit of my prop for the evening this little pendant and i'm going to try to swing it so that you can see i'm swinging the pendant and you can see this this pendant those of you can see you see this the, the pendant swinging back and forth and normally this pendant normally our experience's life is we're down at this end of the pendulum we're at the pendant end and when we're up here we're up we're down we're up we're down we're up, we're down, we're up Board, down, board, up, board, down, board, up. (laughs) We're just swinging between these states. Up, down, up, down. And when we're up, you know, the, the conditioned response is hold on to that. Keep the thing from swinging. Hold it there. But that's not the nature of the pendulum. The pendulum of life swings. Experiences are oscillating. They're up, they're down, they're pleasant, they're unpleasant. And it goes on and on like that incessantly. The good news is the path of practice to, to realize the, the, the great way that the Zen third patriarch is saying is we don't have to stop the pendulum. Our practice is a way of traveling from this end of the, of the pendulum where it's swinging, traveling back up to the pivot point. And at the pivot point, relative to the pendulum swinging, the pivot point is still. It's not moving. So it's a stillness that's aware of the up, the down, the middle, the up, the down, the middle. And you might say, well, what's that pivot point in my being? And the majority of traditions I've looked at will say, articulate that the pivot point is the source of your own awareness. So again, I'm trying to give this this, this um, demonstration because if once you understand it, it can really change your whole orientation to what you're trying to do in the meditation. So again, rather than trying to change experience, rather than trying to change how the pendulum is swinging, rather than trying to engage in that kind of an endeavor, path of practice is to notice how the pendulum is swinging. So when I say be receptive to your experience as it is, just noticing how the experiences you're having are swinging and changing, and then rest as the awareness of those experiences. Just rest back again and again and again into the source of your awareness that's knowing a thought coming and going, that's knowing a a sound, the crickets the foot going numb, noticing experience or your world of experience. And that I've used that word several times that we we're, we're, we're connecting with our inner world. And I want to say a little bit more about that right now, but the world of experience is really what is meant by the word world or loka in, in, in Buddhism. Um, when you hear There's an epithet that that was given to the Buddha where he was referred to as the Loka Vida or Loka Vidu, the knower of the world, the knower of the world. When you hear that, it can trigger all sorts of um, connotations or ideas about what that means. And so some people say that, you know. If someone knows the world, they know everything there is to know about the world. Like they may know everything there is to know about material sciences and quantum mechanics and and every language that that populates the world. You know, you know everything there is about the world. And you know, I've I've met some very wise teachers, and I could say they they didn't speak French, uh, they didn't know Mandarin, they didn't I you know they didn't seem to have command of all forms of knowledge. So, this idea of the knower of the world isn 't that you know the literal world I, I put that, that that association aside. What I think is being mentioned and or meant by this is that the world we know in practice is the world of our experience, how we experience the world from a first person perspective. So right now, your world is filled with all the shapes and colors and uh, features of your physical environment your world is imbued with the sounds of that environment your world is imbued with the physical sensations of your body your world is imbued with the thoughts that your brain produces and you listen and go explore your mind so your world is made up of everything that you experience And all we're doing in practice is becoming the knower of that world. So, you know, coming back one more time to the pendulum, the pendulum swinging is the experience of your world. It's never going to stop swinging. But we can come to rest as the knower, the source of our awareness, the knowing mind that knows the world moving and spinning. two short things before we go into a sitting um my first dharma teacher who's retired now uh, based out in the seattle area named rodney smith uh he describes this anti-fragile heart with the phrase the faith mind and it's just important to remember that in yoga traditions and in buddhism the The mind and the heart are not seen as separate. It's it's this, this unified experience of the awakened mind heart or bodhicitta. So this faith mind is really this awakened heart. And he says, a component of this steadying attention is the development of faith. When you hear the word faith, if you're like me, I think of blind faith in unverifiable propositions about the nature of the world i have faith in something i can't prove it i just have faith in it that's not what is meant by the word in buddhism faith he says here faith is distinguished by a, a relaxed attitude to the presentations of the mind faith is distinguished by a relaxed open relaxed disposition or attitude towards the presentations of the mind, i.e. thoughts and feelings. The faith mind is undefended and confident within the complete array of mental phenomena and is no longer afraid of what the mind contains. So, and this sort of ties into what I, how I started the talk and we're, we're looking at aspects of the shadow or the inner critic aspects of ourselves that normally get repressed will come up and they will attempt to scare us to move us from our seat but we can practice in a way that we just rest as the knower now there are other, there will be other strategies that i i, I recommend um, in terms of working with some of the very difficult energies and i'm just going to speak to that briefly tonight but we will we'll unpack those more as we go but in general As we sit, the the basic encouragement is to relax and be receptive to what occurs. Now, if at any point something becomes something charged comes up, and maybe the sort of the telltale symptoms of the chargedness of the dynamic are that your heart might start to pound, or you feel a constriction in your throat, or you start to sweat, or you just feel like you're getting flooded by something, because you're becoming overwhelmed. If any of that occurs, a lot of anxiety while you're sitting or if you feel like you're just squeezed into a corner and you feel trapped, this is where it's really important to play your edge. You know, and I know in yin yoga, we talk about you know, going to the appropriate edge of a pose and then if it gets too much, backing off um, or coming out entirely. And the same would apply here, that in terms of uh, uh, approaching or playing the psycho-emotional edge as we start to soften in ourselves and open up to more and more of the totality of who we are, which will include the persona and the shadow and everything else. As we do that, if things get too much, I want you to know that it's, 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 I think it's essential to play your edge safely to work with things as in wh- and how you have the wherewithal to work with them. So if something comes up, that's too much, I would recommend a few things, either try opening your eyes in the meditation, so let's say you're sitting and suddenly you're like, whoa, this is really intense and I hate myself, you're getting flooded by something. Just open your eyes and orient yourself to your room. Just look at the, the, the sort of the shape and colors in your that come are before you in the room. Anchor yourself to those things for a moment or two. Once you feel yourself settled and calm down, then you can close your eyes again and then allow whatever's coming up to come up and if it does, again, comes too much, you can then open your eyes again. So there's a little bit of going into it and then coming out, going into the room and then coming out of it. And just knowing that you can do that can often make working with ch- charged material much more bearable, much more workable. Um, sometimes you might not feel you need to open the eyes. Sometimes a simple redirection, you could say, oh, this is really challenging right now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to laser in on my, the sensation of my hands. You can redirect your attention to something more physical as a way of getting some distance on a thing that might be challenging and triggering or overwhelming. And the final one is, I would say, uh, listening to sounds is another very, very good uh, way to work with challenging experiences when they come up. If if you feel like you're getting too hot with something, if something's overwhelming and flooding you, just open your attention to listen to the environmental sounds. So it gets you sort of out of the the closeness of your own mind and spreads your attention to to reference um, more neutral experiences outside of you. Try any of those or try other things that that might occur to you. But it's important to know that when you're working with these deep energies, at times it may be skillful to back off and redirect for a little while. You don't have to stay with it just as is. So I, um, I'm still getting the hang of a 30-minute talk. Um, so I went over slightly, actually more than slightly. So I apologize for the excessive verbosity tonight. But we will now go into a, sit, a sitting. Um, and I'll give you a little guidance in that. So um, stretch a little bit if you'd like. You can stand up for a sec. And, um, and then we'll come to the seat and begin. Okay, so come to a comfortable position, sitting on a cushion or two, on a chair,
1: and we'll sit for about 25 minutes tonight. establish yourself in your seat take a few moments at the beginning to extend the sincerity the sincere wish of goodwill towards yourself can even formulate it in a kind of spiritual mission statement. May I practice with a sincerity of effort,
0: a care and respect of effort to awaken to my true nature, to awaken to a peace that's independent of conditions or to awaken to the the liberated heart of love and compassion. Those are just a few ways of articulating a mission statement. Encourage you to connect with your own uh, virtues, your own languaging
1: And then from this gesture of goodwill towards yourself, let me remind us all that the hypothesis here is that there is a peace and well-being independent of circumstances.
0: Not only that there is a peace and well-being independent of uh, circumstances, that peace and well-being is asserted as being, as being 100%
1: here already.
0: So our, the whole orientation and energy of our practice isn't to rearrange things in our experience. It isn't to change who and what we are it's to settle very, very, very deeply into the source of who
1: we are, which is the doorway to this peace. Now, it's a point of practice, a point for practice. It's kind of an axiomatic idea that the less we do in practice, the better.
0: Overcomplicating meditation with lots and lots of technique and tools can help at times. But it can also reinforce the view that you need to do something specific to get to a specific state.
1: So I'll just reiterate some of the basic instructions here, which is that we can begin.
0: can begin by acknowledging just how our hands are in contact with our lap or how the body sits against the seat. And those physical points of contact, sensation, touchstone, Those points of contact can function like a perch for the attention as and when it might feel good or helpful or stabilizing to rest on this perch. The name of the game is not to keep your attention on the perch the whole time. That would just be an exercise in control.
1: The perch is simply a tool.
0: That can help give us perspective, a bit of rest, a bit of space and distance if we need it.
1: But it's just that, a tool, not a rule.
0: And from this perch, the the basic instructions are to be receptive or to try to be receptive and allowing of your experience as it is. The body will issue a whole variety of sensations and let those be as they are. But the one caveat is If unless we get pain, so pain, particularly if it's very strong, or feels like it's causing injury, pain like that of that sort is not to be tolerated. So if you need to, you can move, you can shift a little bit,
1: to not just endure pain for pain's sake. But if it's just a, a niggling,
0: annoying, achy sensation, dull pressure, itch, or sharp, itchy sensation, if it feels tolerable, I encourage you to work with it. So again, you can see the stimulus. You can see the conditioned reactions to it. And you can start to rest more and more as the awareness that knows the stimulus and the response, but it's not defined by either the stimulus or response. as we've covered in the previous weeks, there are two broad dynamics that will occur when we're meditating. One dynamic being the very deeply conditioned tendency to get absorbed into
1: thought worlds,
0: alternative realities that are simulated by the brain, mediated often by thought. And as Ajahn Amro, one of my
1: monastic teachers, would say, we
0: don't need to stop this at all.
1: Just as the, the brain pumps thought, our heart pumps blood, and we need both organs to do these. So the practice isn't to stop our thinking. It's to develop more comprehensive, abiding awareness of what it's like when we think, to know that world of experience.
0: As I tried to say last week, there's No telling when your mind will be swept away. That happens unconsciously the vast majority of the time,
1: not always, but majority of the time. And it's just something that happens when we
0: meditate. But the other thing that happens is that the world, the world of our senses, that world wakes us up it it
1: it prods us out of the simulated worlds come back to this world of sensation sound And in the phases of your meditation, in the phase when you're awake, in addition to being relaxed and receptive to what's unfolding, when you're awake,
0: lightly raise the question. And i mean this very lightly from not not to repeat it all the time Just every now and then when you're awake just ask yourself
1: where am i aware from
0: where am i aware from where am I, where is my awareness observing
1: I'm not going to say too much about that tonight. We'll pick up on it in future sessions. Just to begin
0: this very light inquiry into where you experience the source of your awareness residing. There's no correct answer to this. It's just a a tool, It's it's a contemplative
1: question. to facilitate your own exploration of what it's like for you to be aware. And your answer is your answer. It's always the correct one. Where are you you aware from? Where is the source of your knowing?
0: Okay, I hope you enjoyed today's talk. And if you did, please consider sharing it with a friend, either through forwarding it in an an email or sharing it online. Um, your sharing is very much appreciated in, in terms of the um, support of the podcast. And also, just want to reiterate if you uh, enjoyed today's talk, consider, do consider becoming a member of the Sangha. Um, you will get full access to our online talks, yoga classes, and the library of all recorded offerings that we have. That's all at www.joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha, S A N G H A. Most importantly, take care of yourself, stay strong, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.